Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, welcome to another episode of Criminal Broads, a true crime podcast about wild women on the wrong or the right side of the law, or simply law adjacent, or maybe law curious. You know what I realized as I was saying the previous sentence is we don't have a nickname for ourselves. I feel like every other podcast in the world is like, hi, squeebademos, like, <laughs> like their listeners have a name. So I'm thinking that you all should go by broadcasters. Hi, broadcasters. How are you today? (laughs) Just kidding. I hate it. Okay, guys, today we're going to hear an interview with a woman named Eliza Orleans, and she is running for the position of Manhattan District Attorney. Now, you're probably sitting there in a state that is not New York thinking, Tori, are you out of your mind This is a podcast about criminal broads, many of them missing rich ladies from 1910. Why should I care about some random race in Manhattan? Well, hear me out. This is not a random race, and this affects you. Yes, you, my beloved broadcaster. (laughs) Just kidding. This is a race, though. Voting is on June 22nd. It is a race that no one is really talking about. A lot of people don't know it's even happening, but it is so important and so relevant to the entire true crime genre that we're in every week that I had to dedicate an entire podcast episode about it. That's how important I feel this is. So the Manhattan District Attorney, or the Manhattan DA, as you'll hear said, is legitimately one of the most powerful offices in the country. There are elections for this position every four years, but as I learn in this interview, you'll hear me (laughs) learning, there's no term limits here. So there have been only two of these guys, and they've always been guys, since 1974. There have only been two Manhattan district attorneys since 1974. Cy Vance was the most recent one, and before him, Robert Morgenthau. Both of them very controversial men. So this is a job with a huge budget, almost $170 million. This is a job that influences the criminal justice system across the country. Everyone looks up to the Manhattan DA to see what to do. I like to call the Manhattan DA the OG true crime influencer. And probably every time I say that, lawyers everywhere cringe. (laughs) But if you care about criminal justice reform, which I know so many of us do, this race is a big deal. This is a watershed moment. The person who gets this job could make a huge difference in a positive way, not just for Manhattan, but for the entire country. Okay? You see why it's so important? You see why we need to talk about it? So today, you're going to meet one of the candidates, Eliza Orleans. And I love Eliza's platform, and I love her history. She has worked for a really long time as a public defender. The public defender, you know what a public defender does, right? These are the lawyers who help those who don't have the budget for a really fancy lawyer. And they're the ones in the trenches dealing with the day-to-day horrible grind of the criminal justice system. And so you're going to hear firsthand from Eliza about the injustices she's witnessed, the corruption. She's going to talk about coercive plea deals, which remember, we learned all about those in the Sister Eli episode. So my point is, Just because you're in Missouri or California or Oregon right now or across the seas, don't think that this episode is irrelevant to you. 
whoever gets this job will affect criminal justice across the country and affect history. So if you listen and you like Eliza, then at the end of the episode, I'll tell you how you can get involved if you'd like. Okay, and last but not least, before the interview, I'd like to shout out to a very special listener, Logan, who listens to Criminal Broads with his mom, Allison, which is so awesome, and I love that. So, hi, Logan. Thanks for being a listener. Hi, Eliza. Welcome to Criminal Broads. Hi, I'm so excited to be here with you. (laughs) So before we talk about you and your story, could you tell us what the Manhattan District Attorney does and why we should care? Of course. So the Manhattan DA is the person who makes all decisions with regards to what crimes get charged, what crimes don't get charged, you know, whether jail is sought as a sentence, whether someone has an opportunity for treatment, basically every decision with regards to crimes that are committed within the borough of Manhattan um, Mm -hmm. are made by the district attorney. And why should someone in like California or like I have listeners in Norway, like why should they care about what's going on in Manhattan? Well, the Manhattan DA is very unique in that the decisions made by the Manhattan district attorney have such far-reaching repercussions. I mean, if you think about the fact that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office failed to charge, declined to prosecute the Trumps back in 2013, and had they done so and that investigation had gone through and potentially there would have been you know, pretty serious consequences for the crimes that were committed in Manhattan, we might never have had a President Donald J. Trump. So that mm. is not just a Manhattan consequence or a New York consequence or a United States consequence. This is something that had international repercussions mm-hmm. because of who our Manhattan district attorney is, um, that he's someone who's consistently turned a blind eye to crimes committed by those who are wealthy and powerful and well-connected. Mm-hmm. But also on the flip side, he has over-prosecuted people for low-level offenses, um, really over-incarcerated people, including you know, predominantly people of color, lower-income folks, people who are LGBTQIA, people with disabilities, And that has repercussions too, because Manhattan should be setting the gold standard. We could be a place where people look to, and people do look to Manhattan as the example and say, oh, look, they're not prosecuting X or Y. They're not prosecuting drug possession or low-level offenses that are the result of poverty or mental illness or substance use disorder. And New York is actually safer for everyone and more equitable and more just but instead they've been doing the reverse. So in terms Mm -hmm. of criminal justice reform, you know, we really could be setting the standard. New York could be a place that everyone looked to and really cities like Boston and Philadelphia and others have moved ahead of us. Yeah. So what New York is doing is for better or for worse, affecting the rest of the country and sort of the rest of the world, not to be too grandiose, right? You're saying this is a city that people look to, they're influenced by... So that's why it's especially important to make sure that the next Manhattan DA has a platform that we can all get behind, right? Exactly, exactly. And it is a position that there are no term limits for, has Mm -hmm. been held by only white men ever in the history Mm -hmm. of its existence. And 
there has been one transition in my lifetime. So Robert Morgenthau was there for 36 years. Cy Vance took over after getting wow. elected in 2009 and has been there for the last dozen years. And wow. this is an unbelievable opportunity. You know, this is a, a position that people stay in for a very long time and, and have a huge impact on the future of, of our city. Oh, I guess I knew it was that long, but I also didn't know because I recently told someone it turned over every four years, which is clearly not right. Where did I get that from? Well, there's an election every four years, but it at least historically has not turned over. I see. I see. You know, Stivian's being there only three terms is actually a short tenure compared to his predecessor. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Let's take a quick break to hear from this episode's sponsor, Athena Club. Okay, if you were in my bathroom, first of all, I'd be like, why are you in my bathroom? And then I'd be like, oh, you just need to wash your hands. Well, that's totally fine. And then I'd be like, do you like my bright yellow shower curtain? And then you would notice that I have this adorable coral colored razor with a cool magnetic like hanging thing in my shower. And you'd be like, tell me all about it. And I'd say... That's the razor from Athena Club. I would tell you that I, as a lifelong near criminal husband razor stealer, have finally found a razor all for myself. Athena Club's razor makes shaving uncomplicated. It's gentle on skin. It's really easy to use. It's designed for the legs of the ladies. And the razor kit is only $9 and you can pick your own handle color and you get an extra blade head and a magnetic hook for storage. So if you want to be like me with a really cool razor, all of your very own hanging in your shower, show your skin you care and get the Athena Club razor kit. If you sign up today, you'll get 20% off your first order because I love you. Just go to athenaclub.com and use promo code BROADS. That's A-T-H-E-N-A-C-L-U-B, athenaclub.com with promo code BROADS for 20% off. Okay, so let's go back in time now and talk about you. (laughs) I'd love to know about where you grew up. What was your childhood like? Did you always want to be a lawyer? I was born and raised in Manhattan. Uh, My mom says I started saying I wanted to be a lawyer when I was three. (laughs) I think there was a point in time when I wanted to be a lawyer slash gymnast. Mm-hmm, uh, of course, because I love gymnastics. So I was like, I'll just be a gymnast on the side. Um, but I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. And when I was in college, uh, I figured out what type of lawyer I wanted to be. You know, I spent a summer working at the Legal Aid Society in the criminal defense practice at the public defender's office here in Manhattan. And one weekend, I was like, yep, this is it. I mm-hmm. found my calling. This is what I'm going to do with my life 100%. I had no doubts about it. And so everything I did from that point forward was to get my job. And I only applied for one job out of law school, which I tell law students, don't do that. It's very risky. Um, You know, I remember in my final round interview with the head of my office, he was like, all right, Eliza, well, so great meeting you. Um, You know, let us know if you get any other job offers. And I said, oh, will that enhance my application? And he said, no, no, we just want to be kept surprised if you're thinking of taking another job. I said, in that case, you should know there won't be other job offers. All my eggs, one basket. This was it. This was what I was going to do for life. And obviously, you know, things have taken a different turn than I expected. uh, But this was certainly not something I could have anticipated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you you know, three-year-old you 
sort of saw this whole arc coming <laughs> other than the gymnast part. Well, actually, that brings me to my next question. You're not not athletic, shall we say. You have a storied career also in reality TV and you've been on Survivor, etc. So tell us about that. Like, was that happening while you were working as a public defender or what was the timeline there? Nope. Survivor came about, I started watching the first season when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching season one and saying to my mom, oh my God, I love this show. I'm going to go be on that show. And she was like, of course you are, sweetheart. You can do anything. And I have a very sweet, encouraging mom. Um, But she now says, be careful what you tell your kids because they believe (laughs) you. Um, And I applied for the show as soon as I turned 21, got cast nearly two decades ago and uh, was on the show. And, you know, it felt like this really fun, interesting thing, this way to challenge myself, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, it really pushes you to your breaking points. Um, And it's not fun in the classic sense of the word, but it's an experience. And I, you know, met incredible people and was lucky enough to get to do that. Yeah. And you got pretty far, right? You were fourth. Yep. Fourth place. 37 out of 39 days. Good for you. And then were you also on the amazing race? I was. Okay. My- I was. <laughs> and I was on Survivor a second time. They, you know, when CBS calls me and says, do you want another shot at, <laughs> you know, one in 20 shot at a million bucks? You're like, mm, yeah, okay. Right. Who am I to say no? My three younger siblings applied to be on The Amazing Race <laughs> as like a little sibling duo, but didn't quite get it. Oh, no. But how was it? Was it miserable? Fun? <laughs> yeah. Oh, miserable. Okay. I'll, <laughs> I'll tell them that. <laughs> it, I don't know how they make it look fun on TV. <laughs> it's not. I yeah. mean, listen, it's also, a you know, an interesting experience, challenging, whatever, but um. <laughs> it's entertainment. So it's not like you're getting to do things in these countries. You're just like, go, go, go. And as opposed to survivor where it feels like you have some self-determination in, in how things mm. turn out. Amazing race like leaves a lot more to chance and you get a taxi driver who doesn't know where you're going and, and, it's just, ex- it's extremely stressful. I was just going to say, I'm getting a little stressed just <laughs> hearing you talk about it. I'm like, oh, I would totally get that taxi driver. <laughs> my shoulders are creeping up towards my ears. So let's go back to your career as a public defender. You started out at the Legal Aid Society. It's a public defender's office here in Manhattan. Yes, yes. And they're great. And so where do we even start with that? You've defended 3,000 New Yorkers. I have. Are there stories that stick in your mind for any reason, like extreme injustice, whatever? What pops out? A story I sometimes tell, which is something that was from my first year as a public defender, and it's something that the case itself is so ordinary, but, you know, I think it just really kind of shows quite well, like, why I have continued to feel such, you know, heartbreak and frustration and anger with the way our criminal legal system operates. Um, And I represented a man. He was 50 years old. I I met him in in night court. I walked in and he was an assistant manager at a Gristidi's, which is a grocery store here Mm -hmm. in Manhattan. And he was working at the same grocery store for 25 years, had made his way up to assistant manager. um, And the night before he was closing up the store, it was around 11 p.m. And he bought two bags of groceries with his employee discount. 
and walked over to the train to go home to his family. He gets on an uncrowded subway car, puts his groceries on the seats next to him, and prepares for his long ride home. At the 125th Street stop, the doors open, two uniformed NYPD officers get on the train, they grab his groceries, dump them to the ground, and place him in handcuffs and take him to jail for the night for the crime of occupying multiple seats on a transit facility, taking up two seats on the subway. On an uncrowded... On an uncrowded train close late to Late night train. Yep. That case, it explains why I just found that this criminal legal system is so cruel and unjust and it's got nothing to do with public safety. It's not keeping us safe, locking up people Mm -hmm. like my client, you Mm -hmm. know, for what, you know, so that's kind of what has led to me ending up running for Manhattan DA because of cases like his. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Definitely want to talk more about like your vision for the DA's office, but I'm feeling like a conspiracy vibe, like for your client, were the cops somehow tipped off or something? How did they happen to just burst through the train then and there? Do you happen to know? They probably are just hanging out in the 125th Street subway stop. I mean, I was Mm -hmm. there the other day Mm -hmm. and saw eight cops hanging out on the platform and they're just trying to make arrests and they see Mm. someone. I mean, I'll give you one guess as to the race of my client Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and they just will make arrests. They can make arrests for anything. But yet, yet, if you think about, you know, the things that I've seen my clients get arrested for, it's they're things that as a white woman, I know I would never be arrested for. Obstruction of a park bench is a crime. Literally, if you lay down on a park bench Mm -hmm. in New York City, you're committing an unclassified misdemeanor. Mm -hmm. If I were laying down on a park bench, maybe a police officer would come up to me. But if he did, which he probably wouldn't, he'd be like, miss, is everything okay? Do you need something? Yeah. Can I help you? Are you all right? Oh, yeah. Well, it's just a different experience than my clients who get like grabbed and violently face down on the sidewalk, handcuffs, you know, taken to jail. Yeah, of course. I mean, I myself have definitely taken up more than one subway seat. I've just started taking my baby on the subway. So I'm there with a stroller and a very wiggly toddler. (laughs) And we like, if we're only taking up two seats, that's a good day. So yeah, I mean, it's it's a complete double standard, which I don't think anyone listening to this is going to be surprised by. On this podcast, we started learning about coercive plea deals, and we just covered a case of a woman who, and I'm sure you have defended a lot of people like this, you know, she was really strong-armed into taking a plea deal for some very weird trumped-up charge. Like, she had been in bed at home seven months pregnant when her husband was at a party where someone was murdered, and she ended up having to take a plea deal for, like, impeding prosecution in the second degree or something. Any um, anecdotes about plea deals that you can share with us? Oh my gosh, so many. The plea situation, like this coercive plea bargaining that exists is so devastating because it really deprives people of their constitutional rights to challenge the search, the seizure, to challenge the evidence against them. And people see the depiction of the criminal legal system on television, in movies, and they think everything is a trial. But the reality is 99% of misdemeanors and like 94% of felonies or something like that result in pleas. And I have told clients to take pleas who were probably innocent of the charges. Saying that out loud, like sounds so, it sounds so terrible, but 
you can tell a client, I can, I can lay out the evidence and say, this is what's going to happen. This is what is going to be said at trial. This is what they're going to say. Even if they're not telling the truth, this is what the jury, the judge is going to see. And especially if it's a police officer testifying. And yes, the rhetoric is changing and people are understanding more now, something that I've known my whole career, which is that test lying is a real thing that police are happy to get on the stand, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, say, I do, and then lie under oath. It's been a very difficult road to, to try to convince people that a police officer who comes in in uniform, who's like, I'm here to protect and serve, is lying under oath. And so when I say a police officer is going to come in and say X, Y, and Z, and people are going to believe them, they're like, but that's not true. And I'm like, I know, but you're facing decades in prison. And right now they're offering you probation. And I think you should take it. It's heart-wrenching, but it's the reality of the system that exists. Listen, these are all things that I want to change as district attorney. These are things that the DA has the ability to change. Mm -hmm. You know, this trial tax, this hearing tax. Gosh, I'm trying to think of a case. So I had a client, again, like these are such like run-of-the-mill cases. We call them OBSO drug sales, like an observation drug sale. Like a cop observing a drug sale? Okay. Right. It's not like a what we call a buy and bust where someone is oh, right. of selling to an undercover police officer, okay. but it's um, like an observation drug sale. And the police officer testified or the allegations were rather that my client was sitting in a SUV, like a higher up vehicle mm-hmm. and that someone got in his car, that they saw him hand drugs to the person. And then they pulled him out of the vehicle, searched him and found 19 baggies of crack cocaine or something like that. Mm -hmm. We knew that this search was unconstitutional. 100%. I knew that this was Mm. a black man who happened to be sitting in a car and was illegally searched by the police. He was facing a minimum of, I think that it was two and a half years in state prison for this, Mm. but the DA was offering probation before the hearing. And I said to him, you know, listen, even though you and I both know that challenging this is extremely difficult, but that what they did was unjust and a violation of your Fourth Amendment rights, I still think you should probably take the probation. And he's like, I didn't sell, I didn't sell. Like, I don't know, I'm not, I want to go forward. And he was out of jail at the time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, they're going to put you in jail. You're going to go to prison. Like, if we lose. And he's like, I don't care, I want to do this. We do this hearing. And the police officer, the way in which they, they would have to show that, that he saw this search is what he says is someone gets in the car, they leave the door slightly open so that overhead lights are on in the car. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the dashboard comes up to basically chest level so that my client mm-hmm. lifts his hand up above his head <laughs> to hand drugs over no. to the person who got in his vehicle. I mean, it is patently absurd. Yeah. It is clearly testimony that is tailored to nullify constitutional objections. Mm. And I had a investigator get that type of car, take photographs because the cop said he was standing on the street. You could basically see neck up. So he would literally yeah. have had to reach his hand up to hand these drugs over and really, truly believed that the judge was going to suppress because it just was so outrageous. Like yeah. It was truly outrageous testimony that was incredible. It was not credible testimony. Right. Literally incredible. It's like an SNL skit of like a really dopey drug dealer who wants to get caught or something like that kind of <laughs> lifting your hand really high to make sure everyone can and see the baggies. Mention, even the door opens so the lights in the car. Yeah. Are yes. Like, I mean, it's, it's slapstick. 
it's slapstick. And the judge was asking a bunch of questions and it really seemed as though he was going to rule in our favor. Oh no. You know, he said, I'll come back tomorrow. I'm going to like render my decision. And he said, I'm not suppressing these drugs. I think that the police officer's testimony was credible and we didn't have a trial defense. We were really going for the hearing here. And the DA recommended five years after Mm. the hearing and wanted him to waive appeal, meaning no one would be able to review the hearing on appeal. And thankfully the judge didn't make us waive appeal. And my client ended up taking the minimum, which was the two and a half. And we expedited the appeal. And by the way, within a matter of months, I mean, he probably spent close to a year in jail, but we found out that this police officer had previously perjured himself, had lied in other cases, and that had not been disclosed to us to challenge his credibility. Um, And so they ended up having to vacate the conviction. I mean, it was this whole crazy story. And he ended up getting, I think, time served rather than us retrying the case uh, Mm -hmm. because he'd already served a year at that point. But like, it's such a small example. Like he was going to get probation beforehand. And then the DA recommended five years because we challenged the constitutionality of Mm -hmm. this lying cop violating my client's fourth amendment rights. Yeah, that's absurd. And like you said, it's also ordinary, right? Happens every day. Right. I'm assuming that was a pretty typical days, weeks of work for you, months. (laughs) I don't know how long it took, but yeah. You know, this guy, I said to him, I was like, this takes a great deal of courage to say, I want to go forward with this hearing, Mm -hmm. you know, knowing that the chips Mm -hmm. are stacked against us always Mm -hmm. because judges tend to side with police officers. It's very difficult to take on these types of cases. Yeah. I was going to ask if you'd come up against corruption in the NYPD and you've already given an example. What's your take on the NYPD as a system? If you become Manhattan DA, like how much authority do you have over the NYPD and what can we do about it? Well, (laughs) minor question. yeah, Yeah, exactly. Well, so the district attorney doesn't actually have control of the NYPD. We don't actually have the ability to make changes within the departments, but the police for so long have been just operating with no consequences, just doing whatever they want, whether it be the brutalization we see of people in the street or the perjury in the courthouse or Mm. the false arrests or falsifying of documents, there are really no consequences for the NYPD. And so I really believe, and it's true, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has been complicit in the continuing misconduct of the NYPD. There has to be a very serious police accountability unit. And I've laid out my plans to create this unit Mm -hmm. and really hold police officers accountable for their behavior. And it would have to be one that was independent because the NYPD still Mm -hmm. is like bringing you the arrests for other cases and everything else. 
but it really has to hold the police accountable for acting illegally, for addressing all of these different types of police misconduct and making sure that that information is out there, that there's a database of police officers who are committing misconduct and making sure that Mm. they are accountable to New Yorkers. There's a right to know. Things like what happened with the case I was just telling you about wouldn't have happened had there been a database where I was able to look up this police officer and say, oh, there has been other times when there have been either credible misconduct allegations or someone who has previously been found to have perjured themselves. This wrongdoing is something that has to be brought to light. Yeah, it's crazy to me that you weren't able to access that information. I mean, that's so relevant. As a public defender, do you just have to sort of hope that someone will bring the information to you, like that the cop has previously perjured himself? What tools do you have there? Yeah, we have to hope. You have to hope. That the Manhattan DA's office tells us that they let us Mm -hmm. know that that this is actually (laughs) going on. I mean, they're supposed to. Under the law, they're supposed to. But Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that they will. Did you have like a come to Jesus moment when you're like, okay, I'm going to run for Manhattan DA? Because <laughs> this is such a big change for you from your work as a public defender, right? Certainly. And it's something that I never anticipated doing. The idea of being a prosecutor was never one that was appealing to me. I always mm-hmm. just wanted to be a public defender and I thought I would be a public defender for life. This really came about over these last few handful of years because Our country is finally coming to a reckoning with how cruel and unjust and systemically racist our criminal legal system is. The fact that it's not keeping us safe, that mass incarceration has never provided the public safety that people want, nor will it ever. It's wasting taxpayer money. It's over-prosecuting low-level offenses and not holding people accountable for serious crimes. And that we can do better and that people are realizing that and they're ready for it. And we're having these national conversations about criminal justice reform in a way that when I began as a public defender a dozen years ago, I never could have imagined. That's good. That's hopeful. Yeah, hopeful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you feel ever like you were going over to enemy lines? (laughs) Not to phrase it too extremely. (laughs) Are you nervous? (laughs) Of course, because when I start thinking about what it's going to be like to take over that office and to actually bring these prosecutions. I mean, of course, it's something that is challenging to think about. I mean, I was talking to a reporter recently and he's like, Eliza, you realize you sometimes say the word prosecutor with disdain. You know that, right? And you know what position you're running for. I'm like, I do. But that's the whole thing that I want to change what it means to be a Mm. prosecutor. You know, I'm not running to be like a good prosecutor. I'm running because I want to figure out ways to systemically change the way a prosecutor's office operates, to think about how we can limit the reach of the prosecutor's office and not just be a progressive prosecutor who still ends up being the primary driver of mass incarceration of people of color.
I wanted to talk about this line from your website that I loved. You said that as district attorney, I will categorically decline to prosecute all violations and the vast majority of misdemeanors. So what does that mean? So the overwhelming majority of cases that come through are low level offenses. You know, things like what I was talking about, like taking up two seats on the subway, laying down on a park bench, jumping a turnstile, minor drug possession charges. And that constitutes probably more than 75% of the cases that come through. So when people think about the criminal legal system, like people who are getting prosecuted are committing serious crimes, it's not true. Mm -hmm. You know, so much of what the criminal legal system is, is really just prosecuting these low level offenses. And it's not keeping us safe. It's not addressing the root causes. It's not addressing the issues people are facing, you know, whether it be that they're in need of substance use disorder treatment, of mental health treatment, whether they're experiencing homelessness. Locking those people up is never going to solve any of those societal problems. So what I want to do is just shift the focus, shift the resources, make sure we are focusing on serious crimes. And we'll be able to do that by discontinuing the prosecution of things that are violations, not even crimes. You know, that's below a misdemeanor. Mm -hmm. And most misdemeanors, Mm -hmm. because that's just not the way our criminal legal system should operate. Yeah. So I think this is good to hear for people who are caught up on this idea that prosecuting less, limiting the amount of people who come in contact with the criminal justice system is somehow letting the serial killers go free in the streets. Right. Right. I sense that fear sometimes in people. And what you're saying is like, no, 75 percent of cases are the guy with the grocery bags on the subway. Exactly. If we do not prosecute that guy, we're not making anyone's lives more endangered. Exactly. And in fact, what we're doing by prosecuting cases like that is making people's lives more dangerous because when someone is locked up, when they're incarcerated, even if it's just for a matter of a few days, we upend that person's life. And I've seen that as a public defender. You know, Mm -hmm. someone misses work for three days, they end up losing their job and then they can't pay their rent. They lose their home. If they're a single parent, they lose their kids. They lose everything they've ever worked for. So of course it makes sense that If someone gets locked up, gets prosecuted, it is more likely that they will end up having future contact with the criminal legal system than if we didn't prosecute that person. Yeah. It's so common sense. I know. (sighs) This is why we need you. Exactly. exactly. (laughs) Before I let you go, what could you use from Criminal Broads listeners to help you win this race? What would be the most helpful? We are running the only grassroots campaign for Manhattan DA. You know, we have, as of the last filing, we had over 7,300 individual contributions. Average donation is under $100. And we are running against people who are millionaires and billionaires, Mm -hmm. truly. Mm -hmm. And the max contribution per individual donor, which is something I'm sure your listeners don't know because it is absolutely wild, is (gasps) $35,000 per person. And so there are people who are taking millions and millions of dollars from max out donors, from people who supported Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. And these are people who are trying to buy this seat so that they can continue to perpetuate the status quo and make sure they are not held accountable people on Wall Street, which also happens to be in Manhattan, by the way. So so that's something the Manhattan DA is responsible for looking into and investigating and, and holding people accountable if they're committing crimes. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, we always need donations. So if people go to elizaorlands.com and can contribute, even if it's $5 or $20, you know, we're so grateful. And we also need volunteers. We have an absolute unbelievable network of volunteers. We have this grassroots army of people. If you're in Mm. New York, we're out doing canvassing. We are talking to people on the street, but we have phone banks and text banks banks and we're doing those on Zoom. And we have volunteers from across the country sign up to volunteer. We need your help to get the message out because when people hear there's only one public defender running and that's what we need to make these changes we also desperately want to see they're so excited to get involved and they want to support but we just need to make sure they know i'm running All right, everyone, thank you for listening. If you're as fired up as I am, go to elizaorlins.com. That's E-L-I-Z-A-O-R-L-I-N-S.com, or you can look for the link in my show notes. And there on her website, you can help in several ways. You can donate, of course. You can volunteer to make phone calls or do a text bank. And perhaps most effectively, you can tell your friends who live in New York City to vote in this race for Manhattan DA on June 22nd. Okay, this is one of those races where it's actually really easy to not even know it's happening. And I totally understand if that's you, if that's your friend who lives in New York. But that's why it can make such a difference to send your friend a text just being like, hey, This podcaster I listen to is yelling at me, and she says you have to go vote. (laughs) And like we learned a couple episodes ago, this is a race where a couple of thousand votes can actually make all the difference in the world. So if you text one or two friends who live in New York, and maybe you post about it on Instagram, you can tag Eliza on Instagram, we could literally help her win. And then, you know, she'll be legally obligated to make a special criminal broads office in the DA's office where we can go and look at all the creepy old case files from the 1920s which is all any of us really want, right? (laughs) Just kidding, obviously. But anyway, check it out, elizaorlands.com. Also, thank you to this episode's patrons for helping me out. Carol P., Jasmine F., thank you so much for your support. And if you all would like to listen to an episode of another podcast that's about a woman from my book, Confident Women, check out the most recent episode of the podcast, Strange Country. They talk about Bonnie Lee Bakley, who is one of the saddest women in my most recent book. Okay, let me tell you what you can expect next episode. We're doing a bit of a shake it up format, okay? Next episode is what I'm calling my update episode. That might sound really boring, but it actually is coming together way more effectively than I thought, and I'm really excited. I went back through all the women that we've talked about on this podcast to see if there was any more news about them, you know, anything that had changed since the episode came out. And what do you know? There is a lot of new news to say about some of these women, and some of it is really, really chilling. So meet me back here in a week, and we're going to sort of like look at a bunch of broads at once and come to some tragic and poignant conclusions. See you there? Same time, same place? All right. Love you guys. Thanks for being the best listeners ever. Bye. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. 
guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.